Uh, yeah, it's good to be back. Good to be with you guys. It's good to see friends that we haven't seen in uh, several months. It feels like, actually, it's only been a month that we're gone, but it feels like we've been gone for about six years. Uh, it's good to see friends that are in town as well, too. Welcome. Uh, would you pray with me? Uh, and then we'll dig into God's word. Lord, we thank you for a chance to gather with your body, uh, with your bride, Jesus. Uh, and Lord, uh, your word tells us that your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. So Lord, we ask that you would convict us by your word this morning and point us to our hope that's found in you and in you alone, Jesus. Would you do that by the power of your spirit this morning? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. One of the more successful TV shows uh, over the past few decades uh, is the TV show ER. Uh, and close to the end of whenever ER was on, was on the air, I think in the, either the last or the second to last season, uh, there was an episode starring the actor Jonathan Banks. Some of you guys may have seen Jonathan Banks and other things like Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul. But, but in this episode that, Robert, or that um, Jonathan Banks guest stars in, he plays a character named Robert. Uh, and the character Robert in this episode uh, is diagnosed with cancer and he's on his deathbed about to die. And, and there's a powerful scene in that episode depicting Robert's interaction with the, ho- the woman who's the hospital chaplain there. So you see in this scene, you see Robert sitting in his hospital bed, hooked up to IVs, holding a rosary in his hand, and he starts to talk to the chaplain, and he tells the chaplain that years before, he had served as a U.S. Marshal, where he'd had to assist in executions for inmates on death row. And he had helped put an inmate to death, only to find out about seven months later that the person he had helped put to death was actually innocent and framed for the murder that he was on death row for. And, and so as Robert sits there in his bed, he, he's, he's fighting back tears, he, he's shaking, and he makes this remark and says, how can I ever even hope for forgiveness? Mm-hmm. Well, and the, and the chaplain just kind of responds back with some sort of vague, new agey, non-committal <laughs> answer and says like, well, you know, you, you just kind of need to forgive yourself and just move on from here. And he kind of looks back at her shocked, and he's like, what do you mean, move on? This is it for me. I'm going to die soon, and I'm worried about what's going to happen next. Well, and then the chaplain says, well, what do you think is going to happen next? And Robert becomes a little more agitated. He's like, well, you tell me. You're the chaplain. I mean, is atonement even possible? What does God want from me in this? Well, and they continue to go back and forth and back and forth, and the tension keeps building in this scene until finally Robert leans forward through his IVs and screams and points at her and says, get out. I want a real chaplain in here who believes in a real God and a real hell who can give me some answers because I need answers. I need someone who will look me in the eye and tell me how to find forgiveness because I'm running out of time. Wow. And then the scene ends after that, and it's a very powerful scene. And I think one of the reasons that it's so powerful for me is because it forces me to wrestle with questions that I might otherwise choose to ignore and keep at arm's length. Like the character Robert in the show, I'm also one day going to die. I'm going to face death. And one day I also am going to stand before God and give an account of my life for what I've done. And the scene forces me to kind of ask myself the question of, Am I really sure of my standing before God? And if so, on what basis am I sure of that? 
maybe you've wrestled with similar questions yourself. You know, if, like me, maybe you, you sometimes can think back on, on previous sins in life and, and wonder, how could God actually forgive that that I've done? Or, or maybe instead of thinking of sins that you've committed, maybe you think back on opportunities you had to do good and, and are filled with regret and remorse, wishing that you could jump in a time machine and go back in time and make things right. These type of questions, if we're honest, make us wonder, can I actually have any real confidence in my standing before the Lord? This morning, we're going to look at a passage uh, back in Romans. If you want to turn back to the passage we just read in Romans 5 uh, that touches on this, uh, and it gives one big overarching reason for for why we can have confidence. And we're going to explore this more in a minute, but the overarching reason that Paul sees for why we can have confidence in this passage is because who we're united to fundamentally determines our destiny and fundamentally determines where we're headed for all of eternity. Uh, Let me give you just a little bit of background to Romans chapter 5. So, Uh, Romans was written by Paul to a a group of uh, Jewish and Gentile Christians living in Rome, and uh, and he he writes Romans for a couple of different reasons, one of which is he planned on going on mission to Spain uh, to preach the gospel there, so he wants the church in Rome's help in getting him there, uh, both financially and logistically. But he also presumably, as an apostle, had heard about several of the issues that were going on at Rome as well. So he, he writes to address some of these issues that he's heard about. Uh, and his solution for these issues is found right at the beginning in Romans chapter 1, verses 16, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it, the gospel, the good news of the salvation of Jesus, is the power of salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Uh, and, and in many ways, the rest of Romans is kind of just a big unpacking of this gospel hope, of this hope of the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Uh, And if you want to think about it this way, the first four chapters of Romans kind of break down into the heart of the gospel, which is that we're justified by faith in Jesus, not by anything that we've done, that our standing before God the Father, uh, we're justified before him by faith through grace. But but if the first four chapters are the heart of the gospel, Paul switches in chapters 5 through 8 to talking about the assurance of the gospel. So, so it's kind of like if chapters one through four are we're justified by faith, chapters five through eight are, well, what does that mean for us practically? Uh, and that's where chapter five picks up. Chapter five starts out in verse one where Paul says, you know, therefore having been justified by faith with God, we have peace. And that peace produces hope. And hope here in the biblical sense is, is not like we use the word hope today where it's like, uh, I hope this might happen, but it may or may not happen. There's a, you know, there's a decent chance it will, but I don't actually know. I, I hope that it will. Uh, th- that's not how hope is used here in the biblical sense. Uh, hope here ha- has weight to it. it. It's got meat on its bones, if you will. Uh, it's real. It's solid. It's concrete and tangible. And, and that's the type of hope that Paul is saying we have through Jesus and through what he's done on the cross for us. And and in chapter 5, leading up to the passage we read and that we're going to dive into, Paul basically gives two reasons uh, for this hope, one of which is the the great love of Jesus and then also the work of Jesus, what Jesus fundamentally did. Uh, And and in talking about what Jesus fundamentally did, Paul draws a comparison to Adam. And his his comparison is pretty simple where he says that, you know, Uh, you know, Adam did one thing. He committed one sin and it affected everybody who's united to him. Jesus did one thing. He died on the cross and it affected everybody who's united to him. Uh, So that's kind of where we pick up in our passages that Paul sees this similarity between what what Adam did and what Christ has done. Um, 
But in many ways, you know, while, while there is some similarities in there, Paul also sees that there are fundamental differences between the work of Adam and the work of Jesus. They're fundamentally different, and the fact that they're fundamentally different is what Paul sees as hope here. So how are they different? That's what we're going to dive in today. First, Paul says that the way that the work of Adam and the work are different uh, is because they have different natures. Uh, Second, because they have different consequences. And third, because they have different destinies. Uh, So look with me again, and let's read verse 15 again, and let's talk a little bit about the different natures of of Adam's work and Christ's work. In verse 15, Paul says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So, so Paul says that by their very nature, just inherently what Adam did and what Jesus did are fundamentally different. And they're different in this way. Adam's brought death. Jesus brought, justif- or brought grace. So uh, if you're new to the Bible and if you're, you're new to Christianity, this, this whole language of Adam might seem a little bit confusing. Uh, so the story of Adam is basically this. Uh, back in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1 through 3, uh, God creates Adam and Eve uh, in a perfect world, and he puts them in charge of the world. And he tells them, hey, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. Uh, basically fill the earth with people who worship me, with things that bring me glory, and do it all for, for my sake, for my glory. And so Adam is quite literally, in Genesis 1 and 2, he's quite literally the king of the world. Whatever he decides to do is what's going to happen. Uh, but God tells Adam, there's one tree that you're not to eat of the fruit of, and if you eat the fruit of that, you will die. And so Adam and Eve eat of that fruit. Uh, and what happens through that is all of humanity and all of creation was plunged into a state of sin and death, of both physical and spiritual separation from God's presence. You you know, you can think of it like this, that uh, if a king were to decide, like, hey, I'm going to go to war with that country, it's it's not like that king is saying, like, well, I don't like that country, I'm going to go to war with them, but everybody else in my kingdom can kind of do whatever they want, they can choose to get in on that or not. No, no, that's not how it works. You know, the, the king, as the head, his decision has ramifications on everybody who is underneath him. And, and that's essentially what's happening in the garden, uh, is that when Adam chose to rebel against God, in doing so, all of us, all of creation, us included, was put into a state of sin and death that we're now born into by nature. There, there's three important things to understand about death in this passage, like where Paul says, through through one man's trespass, many died. Uh, First is that death here is physical. You know, the the fact that human beings die was never a part of God's original good design. It it may seem normal to us, but it's utterly foreign to what God created for his world. And, And according to Paul, this physical death that by nature you and I are both gonna pass through is a direct result of Adam's disobedience on our behalf. The the second is that death is spiritual here too. So Paul isn't just talking about physical death coming through Adam. He also probably has the spiritual aspect to this in mind because he goes on in the next verse to talk about uh, Adam's sin bringing judgment and condemnation. So he's he's likely kind of using death as an all-encompassing word here for both the, the physical and spiritual separation from God. And then third, death is universal in this passage. You know, Paul uses the phrase many here in kind of a poetic way. You know, it's not like Paul saying, like, 
Some people might die. Not, not everybody's going to die, though. Now, what Paul is saying is that everyone, every single person who is united to Adam by their nature will die. That that's where everyone by their nature is headed. And apart from God's gracious intervention, they will die and spend eternity apart from him. There's this nature to the work of Adam that in Adam we fundamentally get what we deserve. And Adam fundamentally got what, what was deserved of him, which is that, you know, that death comes through the works of Adam. But the good news is that in Christ we fundamentally get what we don't deserve. The, the second part of this verse says that through Jesus grace abounds. Grace is fundamentally getting something that you don't deserve. If by nature I, I deserve death and separation from God, then the good news of the gospel is that I don't get what I deserve. And God extends to me something uh, fundamentally different, something undeserved. So, so what, what have I and what have we received for those of us that are in Christ that we don't deserve? Verse 16 kind of helps us unpack that. So let's read it again. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So here we see that not only do the works of Adam and the work of Christ have different natures, they also have different consequences too. Adam's brought judgment and condemnation and Jesus, Jesus' actions brought justification. Jesus' act brought justification rather. So this whole idea of death and judgment and condemnation, this, this is kind of foreshadowing where Paul's actually gonna go in the next chapter in Romans 6 where he says that the wages of sin is death. You know, a wage is something that we pay. So the idea here is that the payment that each of us must pay for our own sins, both, both the sinful nature that we inherit by virtue of being descendants of Adam and the sinful acts that we commit out of that nature that's born into us, deserves uh, death, separation from the Lord. And so maybe you're new to all this you know, Christianity stuff and you're thinking, like, I mean, that seems a little bit harsh. Uh, you know, I've, I've done bad things, but I'm no murderer or anything. I've never killed anybody. Uh, I would challenge you just to consider two things from, from this passage in particular. Uh, one is that the, the seriousness of a crime is dictated by the person that it's against. So, you know, think, you could think of it this way, like, if I'm walking around here in Orlando and I see somebody who's got kind of a big yard and it's kind of fenced in or something, and I decide like, that looks like a fun yard to run around in. I'm gonna hop over that fence and just kind of, you know, run around, do whatever in, the, in their front yard. Uh, I'm trespassing if I do that. I'm not supposed to be on their property. And the, the, per, the owner may or may not call the police. He may also just choose to come out and say like, hey, what are you doing here? Would you mind leaving? Uh, but it probably wouldn't be that big of a deal if I were to do that. Most likely it would be a situation that would get resolved pretty quickly. But if I were to hop over the fence to the White House lawn, I would be tackled pretty quickly and I would probably face jail time for doing that. And well, why is that? It's because there's a certain nature and gravitas that just inherently accompanies the office of president that, that's just way more weighty and way more serious than just you know average Joe here. And that's what we have going on here in, in Adam's nature and our sin. Our, our sin against God isn't just like the, a sin against a, a president or, or a politician. It's a sin against the author of life yeah. and the creator of the universe. Right. 
And, and second, the whole point of this passage isn't to say that some people do really bad things, other people do kind of bad things, some people are, are basically good. No, it, it's saying that all of us, all of us in our nature through Adam uh, do bad things because we're united to Adam. We, we do things leading to death because death is already at work in us from our birth. Uh, we're not called sinners in the Bible because we commit sins. We, we commit sins out of our sinful nature that we're born into. We, we don't just need forgiveness. We, we, we need a new nature. We, we need a savior yes. if this is who we are in Adam. And, and that's the good news in this passage here is that where Paul says that we have been justified before God, um, that, that's legal language that Paul's using. Is he's saying that the, the judge has banged the gavel and declared not guilty over us because Jesus has taken the punishment that our sin and that our rebellion against God deserves. You know, you can think of it this way. One day, you know, you and me both, are, we're going to die. We're going to stand before God and, and have to give an account of our life. And let's just imagine, I don't know what that's going to look like that day, but Let's just imagine for the sake of illustration that when, job, when God says, you know, give me an account of your life, he's like, I want it typed up like a job resume, like, like you would if you're applying for a job. And so on your job resume, it's going to be exhaustive. It's going to have every, every good thing you ever did, every bad thing you ever did, and unfortunately, every bad motivation you ever had for every good thing you ever did as well. <laughs> and, and that would be probably, you know, be pretty scary, intimidating frightening. There, there's a range of emotions that, that a person would feel having to give their whole life as an account before Jesus and before God the Father. But, but imagine for a minute that Jesus offered to exchange his resume with you before the Father. So on the column in Jesus' resume that says sins committed, it's 100% blank. And under things that were good, righteous, done, it has things like perfectly prayed, always trusted in the Father, loved the Lord with his whole heart, loved his neighbor as himself, sought good, did justice, everything that the Bible requires is there on Jesus' resume. Mm -hmm. And Jesus offered to exchange resumes with you. That's exactly what we have in the cross. And, and that's part of what Paul means by justification. It, it's being declared right. Uh, you know, our, our guilt is gone. Our slate is wiped clean because of what Jesus did. And, and you might be thinking to yourself, well, in some ways that, that, that seems unfair. And, and you're right in part, it, it is unfair. That, that, that's kind of the whole point is if God gave us what was fair to us, we'd all be headed straight to hell in a handbasket because that's not what, that, that is what we deserve. What Christ deserved is given to us because he took what we deserve. The gospel tells us that while we're, we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ took our resume and gives us his resume for all of eternity. And that leads us into the third way in which the works of Adam and the works of Jesus are different is they have different destinies. Let's read verses 17 through 19 again. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. 
So note, you, know, you can see in here that Paul kind of uses, when he's talking about Adam, he uses a lot of similar language to what he just said in the previous two verses. He says, you know, we're, we're sinners in Adam, you know, we're condemned in Adam. And, and he mentions death again here too, but, but, but notice what he says in particular about death as it's connected with Adam. He says, death reigned through Adam. Death is king through Adam. There's no escaping it. There's no getting around it. This is a sobering reality that that death reigns through Adam, through our nature in Adam. And it's a sobering reality that I confess I often don't think enough or think deeply enough about. And this was brought home to me actually really recently while I was on our summer mission trip in Atlanta. I was having a particularly difficult couple of days. I was frustrated, I was angry, I was distracted by things going on here in Orlando that I was having to take care of while I was on mission. And I, and I went to bed that evening kind of, kind of in that mental space, somewhere between angry, frustrated, afraid, upset, fatigued, all of those things just plaguing my mind. And I just couldn't bounce, I couldn't get away from one without thinking about the other. Well, I, I went to bed that night and I, and I had a dream that night and I'll, I'll spare you all the details of that dream but I'll tell you the end as it relates to this, because at the very end of my dream, every single thing in my dream went black, and I just heard a loud voice shout, in Adam I'll die. And then I, my eyes just sort of, you know, I jumped and my eyes just sort of shot open. Uh, and, and I was pretty startled by that, because I can probably count on one hand how many times I've had a dream where a voice screams the Bible at me, because that, that is a quote from 1 Corinthians 15, 22, where Paul says, in Adam I'll die, but in Christ all shall be made alive. Uh, and, and also, I, I had no idea, too, that this was going to be one of the passages I was going to have the option through the readings to preach on uh, this week. And, and as I thought and as I prayed and processed with, with Cameron, with others, about, like, Lord, what are you, what are you trying to tell me? What, what's going on? I, I really feel like the Lord was, was using that to kind of wake me up and tell me, like, Ed, you're distracted right now. You, you, you're preoccupied with a lot of things, with a lot of anger, with a lot of frustration, with a lot of uncertainty. What you need to remember is that with the people you are trying to reach, eternity is at stake for them. They will die apart from Jesus. That there is no hope for them apart from Jesus and being united to him eternally and forever. Notice a couple of things about verse 17 in particular. Paul switches up the metaphor in verse 17 in two incredible ways. Um, first, he doesn't do just a simple as this, so also that comparison. You know, he's not saying like, as Adam did this, so Jesus did that. No, he's like, as Adam did this, so much more that. As death reigned through Adam, much more will life reign through Jesus? And that's good news for us this morning. And, and we know that, that, we're, that life reigns through Jesus and that we're going to reign in life through Jesus if we're united to him uh, because he rose for us. He didn't just die for us. He is the author of life, conquered death. There is life in him. And so now when we die, although we know we are still physically going to die, uh, we, we go to be with him where we wait for one day where we, like him, are going to be physically raised from the dead and enjoy a new heaven and a new earth and a new creation world where we get to join with the saints who, who sing and say death is swallowed up in victory oh death where is your sting oh death where is your victory 
the life that Jesus gives is greater than the death that Adam causes us to die. Amen. Second, notice the shift in subject in verse 17. At at the start of verse 17, what's reigning? Death is what's reigning. But notice what's reigning at the end of verse 17. We're reigning in life through Christ. For those of us who have received, uh, received Jesus, this, this is the good news, and this is mind-blowing and so incredibly encouraging to me. The, the first half of this verse has to do with fate. It's where you're headed, whether you like it or not, in Adam. But the second part of this verse has to do with decision and choice, and there's inherent hope in that. And, and it's a hope that can't be taken lightly and can't be overstated because the, the fact is that if you do not receive this gift that Jesus has given, uh, you will not participate in this life that he offers, both now and in eternity. This life, this justification, this grace is only applied to those who receive Jesus as their Savior. The, the bad news of this passage is that if you have not received Jesus as your Savior, then you are still in Adam. You're under the curse of Adam. And you will one day die. And you will spend eternity apart from God. And, and, and if that's you this morning, I, I beg you, beg you to give your life to Jesus and enter into that life eternal with him. But the good news is that for those of us who are in Christ, is that that isn't the whole story of the Bible. Our fate is no longer determined by Adam. Who we're united to determines where we are headed. And the good news is that Jesus has taken all of our sins and dealt with them on the cross. On the cross, Jesus took my sinful resume and gave me his spotless record. On the cross, Jesus died the death I deserve where he was physically killed and and, and spiritually separated from God the Father when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that I can be reconciled to our Heavenly Father? On the cross, Jesus took what I deserve and in exchange gave me all that he had earned. And through his resurrection, Jesus gives me life eternal, both both now and at death, where I'll I'll go and spend eternity with him, uh, where we await his second coming. Uh, where I'll be physically raised to newness of life on his return. And then to paraphrase 1 Corinthians again, where the final enemy, death, will have finally been defeated in that moment. The, The good news for us today is that for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, our standing before God is not based on a subjective feeling, but on an objective reality. And and that hope, that's where Paul finds the hope in this passage, is the objective reality of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and through his resurrection. And and, and it's a hope that that Paul keeps coming back to through the next few chapters, and he keeps building on, and he keeps celebrating, and he keeps rejoicing in, and he keeps going and going of like, hey, we've been united with Christ. There's no longer any condemnation for those of us who are in death until he finally gets to the point where he just can't help but shout out in chapter 8 where he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you've placed your faith in Jesus today, that is your hope. And that is your confidence and your standing before the Lord. So in light of this, how should we respond today? in our lives as we currently are. Uh, I think this passage speaks into three particular areas that are relevant to us uh, as a congregation uh, that I think this passage speaks incredible hope into. Uh, One is in the area of death itself. Uh, The second is in difficult circumstances in life. And then third is in the area of evangelism. When it it comes to, to death, because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we face death with an unshakable, unshakable hope because we know that our, our eternal standing before God the Father is not based on anything that I could do to appease him, but it's based on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We know that while we were once dead in Adam, through Christ we've now been made alive. When it comes to difficult circumstances that you're facing in your life, whether, uh, whether it's a financial hardship whether it's a house issue or a marriage issue, whatever it may be, because of what Jesus did, we can handle difficult circumstances here and now with confident assurance because we know that if Jesus has taken care of our eternity, then surely he can take care of our temporary. And then when it comes to evangelism, because of what Jesus did for us on the cross and through his resurrection, we boldly proclaim what Jesus has done, and that there is salvation in him, and there's no other name in heaven or on earth in which man can be saved. Because we we know that in Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive through faith in him. If you don't hear me say anything else this morning, this is the whole point of everything I've been trying to communicate with you, is that because Jesus graciously died for us on the cross and justifies us before God and gives us eternal life, We can face death with an unshakable hope. We can handle difficult circumstances with confident assurance, and we boldly proclaim the free gift of salvation to the world. I'll close with this because I think this is a a fitting end to to how our hope in Jesus uh, informs uh, both our hope now and in eternity. Uh, Tim Keller was a pastor who recently passed away, and he tells this story in one of the books that he wrote. Uh, But there was a, a, a pastor years ago in Philadelphia Uh, who lost his wife. Uh, And he lost his wife while his daughter was still particularly young. So this pastor found himself in a situation where he needed to not only process and grieve the the loss of his wife, but as a father, he also needed to help his daughter process the loss of her mother in her young age. And so one day, this pastor is out driving in his car with his daughter, uh, and a big giant moving truck passes them on the side of the road. And it's so big that it kind of overshadows them. It blocks out the sun. And in that moment, the pastor had an idea. And so he turned to his daughter and said, would you rather be run over by the truck or by the shadow of the truck? 
and his daughter said, I'd rather be run over by the shadow uh, because the, you know, the, the shadow can't uh, really hurt me. And the pastor replied to her and said, you're right. If the truck doesn't hit you, but only its shadow, then you're fine. It was only the shadow of death that went over your mother. She is actually alive, more alive than we are. And, because, and that's because 2,000 years ago, the real truck of death hit Jesus. And because death crushed Jesus and we believe in him, now the only thing that can come over us is the shadow of death. And that shadow of death is but my entrance into glory. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your death on the cross and your resurrection, conquering sin and death. Lord, we ask us that you would fill us with this hope and confident assurance and send us out into the world with confident hope, knowing that we are yours as we proclaim your salvation to the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.